3: Good morning and welcome to 3CR Breakfast. Today you'll hear conversations on politics, alternative news, community actions and other updates.
1: My name is Vivian Langford, and this particular show will look at reforestation. There was a pledge at Glasgow on day two to stop and reverse deforestation by 2030. The deal included $6.2 billion of private finance and $10 billion of public finance to restore deforested land and support Indigenous communities. I think it will be wonderful if this could gain high profile and gain huge support because we've tried it before in 2014 and nothing much happened. Now it's urgent as the Amazon becomes a net emitter of carbon rather than a carbon sink. I did an interview with Peg Putt about loopholes. Of course, this is not going to be smooth sailing, and she's a veteran of many COPs and many negotiations about preserving forest. One of the loopholes is around biomass, which is currently framed as a renewable energy. I think it's hard to believe that the world could stop deforestation by 2030. One way would be to not let biomass wood pellets be counted as renewable energy. Pegpart is a veteran of this campaign. Pegpart is with us to talk about the Glasgow Declaration on Forests and Land Use. It was signed by 100 countries, and they're pledged to end deforestation by 2030. Peg is an expert on forest negotiations at the UN level and is the coordinator of the Biomass Working Group. We last heard from Peg during the Tasmanian bushfires when she was surrounded by smoke and had bushfire refugees in her house. And I've invited her today to explore the loopholes in this declaration, which looks so good on the front of it. So welcome, Peg. Just let's start by telling, tell the listeners what it's like where you are today.
4: Oh, well, where I am today, it's a lovely spring morning in Tasmania. Basically, plants are leaping out of the ground virtually. Trees um, have been growing magnificently because we've had a wet spring and so as the eucalypts grow bigger and broader the the bark has been peeling off in magnificent colors and (laughs) uh, the forests are really alive and and growing so it's it's great
1: well look let's start now we're at the heavy thing of the united nations in glasgow and there's a lot of money in play let's start with the money i want to know will restoration of forests mean money to conserve forests as carbon sinks? Will that be given to Indigenous protectors, for example, in the Amazon, in Borneo, in places where people are already protecting the forests?
4: It's a big question about the money. It never gets down to the people on the ground, or very rarely. And Indigenous peoples are the best protectors of the forest that there ever were. Where you you have Indigenous communities still living in the forest and securely there, those are the areas of forest where there have not been massive incursions and uh, deforestation and large-scale logging. Those, those communities have protected and lived with Those and within those areas for decades, centuries, millennia, and they're the very best people to do it. But the money, the money for looking after forests, unfortunately, is routinely allocated to forest agencies and that means logging agencies, where they go around saying we're doing deforestation and what they do is plant monoculture plantations. So you've swapped a beautiful, rich, biodiverse forest with all of that life in it and all of that carbon in it for something that is just really poor in terms Mm. of both carbon and biodiversity and no place for people to live. It's also going to government departments all over the place, that money, and um, just very little trickling down to what is really needed. Furthermore, it's not enough. When the Uh, Glasgow uh, leaders' declaration on on deforestation and land use came out, the observation immediately was, we need $500 billion a year Mm. to keep our forests and to restore and rehabilitate them. Restoration being quite different to tree planting, which is putting in monoculture plantations more frequently than not. And the UN doesn't differentiate there at the climate convention they don't differentiate between a monoculture plantation and a rich natural forest so that leads you into a world of trouble
1: yeah well look the pledge commits also business leaders like ceos to eliminate activities this is the phrase they use to eliminate activities linked to deforestation and i want to know what does this mean for products like palm oil soybeans beef and what alternative livelihoods for local people are proposed
4: for those forest commodities they are there because the forest has been completely got rid of and replaced with those activities but it's usually big agricultural conglomerates that are uh, running those here in tasmania for example we've just got a huge issue going on about jbs buying out the um one of the big Aquaculture companies, because people are really upset about what aquaculture is doing. They already own um, the big meat processing facilities here. They're Brazilian. They've come out of the cattle industry. They are monstrous, and they have an appalling human rights record and an appalling record of corruption. Their two main principals ended up in jail for a number of years. Um, These are the people that actually um, are benefiting from the uh, deforestation and something really does need to be done about that in the global supply chains.
1: So what does it mean when they've signed up to commit to, you know, delinking their activities from deforestation?
4: It's a, it's a leaders declaration It doesn't it isn't signed by those companies. Mm. I don't know how those com the, the leaders are going to make those companies suddenly become good when they've been so bad. It this is a feel good statement and one of the problems is it's not inside the formal negotiations uh, that are going on at COP26 in Glasgow. This is a thing that's happening on the side as um, a feel-good declaration, uh, but it's not, um, it's not got the force it would have if it was actually part of the negotiations because then it would have to be accountable and it would have to be transparent and we would see whether or not it was working money was going who was involved who was doing something who wasn't none of that's going to happen
1: Hmm. look it sounds so simple you know I I love that it was on the first day or second day they declared that and it sounded so simple but there are gaping loopholes aren't there around the definition coming now to wood pellets and biomass they're calling it renewable energy but would you tell us about how huge this trade is Sketch? you know, the dimensions of this wood pellet trade and what the Glasgow Declaration says about something that you've been calling fake renewables.
4: The Glasgow Declaration, I think, is incredibly misleading because it talks about deforestation and it talks about land degradation, but it totally ignores uh, the thing that we see daily in Australia and people are seeing all over the world, which is industrial-scale logging. That occurs in places that are forests, and it remains in the possession of the forest industry or the state for dedication to forestry, and therefore it is not counted as deforestation. So Mm. it's just completely outside of this declaration. All the industrial-scale logging you actually want to tackle Mm. isn't in here, but what is in here is a commitment to sustainable forest management, which sounds lovely but actually means business-as-usual logging. um so we're talking about clear cutting on a massive scale all over the planet um and and that is increasingly to feed uh bioenergy that is to feed for for putting forests into what were coal-fired power stations and burning wood instead Mm. to produce energy or co-firing it with coal to make the coal more efficient now Mm. when you burn forest It actually emits more carbon dioxide immediately than burning coal. But what we've got here is an industry that is built on this notion that somehow that can be carbon neutral or zero emissions. And the idea is that you chop down a tree, you burn it, it grows back, everything's equal. The problem is when you chop down a forest We don't often see it growing back to what it ever was before, Mm. and we certainly don't see that happen inside the timeframes for the Paris Agreement. We're meant to be cutting emissions in half by 2030 and getting down to net zero by 2050. Burning forests is sending it in the opposite direction and it's escalating. In Europe, um, it is massive already. They can't supply enough from their own forests; They're getting it from overseas, same in the UK. And now that's beginning to happen um, increasingly in Japan and South Korea. And they're searching down into the forests of Southeast Asia and to Australia for that supply. At the same time, places like Australia, we've got a big um, controversy in the Hunter Valley in New South Wales, where the Red Banks power station, a very inefficient old coal-fired power station, is now uh, slated to be um, reopened as a 100% biomass burning power station out of forests. These are the koala forests of northern and mid-north New South mm. Wales that would be fed into that power station allegedly for renewable energy. It's an absolute outrage and people are starting to rise up about it all around the planet. But the problem is that the countries that are, that are burning it benefit greatly because they're able to um, account for it as zero emissions in the energy sector due to mm-hmm. some dodgy accounting um, in the carbon side. So they look like they're doing a massive job on renewable energy, such as Europe. I think people in Australia would be stunned to discover that 60% of the renewable energy in uh, Europe is bioenergy. It's not wind or solar. That's a very small proportion and most of that bioenergy is actually forest biomass coming straight out of the forest so a huge amount being burnt in the name of uh, fixing the climate when it's actually not only making climate change worse but it's also driving the biodiversity crisis
1: oh it's so discouraging because it just seems like humbug it just seems like they're pulling the wool over your eyes and all these you know i've been attending the cop Uh, Glasgow cop sort of looking at the people in the street as well you know these sort of side events and things in the streets and people Amazon people they're beautiful girls with feather crowns and people speaking so earnestly about the forests that they do live in and do preserve and do have a huge connection with and then to have these people just doing accounting tricks it's just the most dreadful deception it's so late in history to be doing it like this i I can't bear it
4: it's almost beyond belief isn't it we find it so difficult to explain to people what's happening because they simply can't believe that leaders would behave so badly or be so misinformed or that people would be prepared in support of an industry to go so far in the wrong direction whilst claiming that they're doing the right thing Mm. when we're on the cusp or beyond the cusp of something really irretrievably bad. Mm -hmm. Um, But that, I mean, I guess this is what one learns about human nature and about politics and that when you take it to the international arena, people don't get any better and politics doesn't get any better. There are layers Mm -hmm. of deception before you actually get to real change. One of the th- problems is that this stuff is so convoluted and deliberately so about mm. forests that a lot of those high-level makers themselves don't understand. They think that when they commit to deforestation, they're actually going to do something about um, the loss of forests. They don't understand that they're committing to ongoing conversion of natural forests into monoculture plantations, into um, degraded forests mm. and so on. Um, if if they're not going completely off the scale to another land use, which would be deforestation.
1: Yeah. Well, look, Boris Johnson, you know, waxed really lyrical at one stage. He called the forest these great teeming ecosystems, these cathedrals of nature, the lungs of our planet. Well, look, you're a former politician. Listeners might not know you. You were in the Tasmanian parliament as the leader of the Greens so, you know, politicians, they do get very um, flowery. But um, what do you think those 100 countries really need to do to make the flowery rhetoric a reality? I mean, just talk to those countries. What do they need to do? We need those forests to sink, I think. Just talk to them, those 100 countries. What do they need to do?
4: Well, those countries need to comprehend that, these feelings that Boris Johnson articulated are ones that are felt deeply by so many people around the planet. We have a, a real connection to forest. We came out of the forest originally, but the forest also, when it's standing, it's not only the teeming biodiversity, it is the highly concentrated carbon stocks that are out of the atmosphere, down on the ground, stored safely in the forest, and what we need to do is keep them there. And so the leaders need to say to the people implementing it, that's what we wanted to do. There are a bunch of weasel words, tricky words, such that we can keep on doing industrial scale logging all over the place and, um, and say that we've met the pledge even though we've destroyed forests. But that is not morally the right thing to do, given what people have understood the declaration was meant to do. And if you're relying as leaders on tricky language to mislead people, so you look good, whilst behind the scenes at the negotiations, you don't (coughs) go far enough, then it's completely unacceptable. Um, And of course, we as the people have to get on top of it and keep pointing that out to leaders as well as just giving a thumbs down to burning burning wood for energy, just as we do for burning fossil fuels. We need to go beyond burning. We've got to stop using carbon fuels. Yeah.
1: Tell us some examples of places where that leadership is being shown. I, I'm interested in to know if people are being compensated. You know, in Australia, we have this whole problem of the just transition for coal workers, for example. You know, and it just hasn't materialised. It hasn't been, the vision hasn't really been painted strongly enough and there are still people voting to protect those 19th century jobs, let's say. So, in the way, forests, where are some leading examples that you might have seen or people you've worked with where they've got a vision of how you would do it, how you keep, keep the people who are presently profiting sort of active? You know, they could, to me, they could all be deployed as restoring the forest, you know, pay people to restore forests. Of the degraded lands you know but what do you think
4: well the shining example to me is costa rica i went there with christine milne um oh a long time ago now in 1998 when they first started talking about protecting their forests as big stores of carbon and biodiversity Um, and completely changing their approach. I mean, this is a country that's also been bold enough to say, we don't like war, we're not going to have an army. Um, (laughs) So, you know, we are talking about politicians on the cutting edge. When we were there, we went to see the forest and we came across a school tour group. Every school is taken to see the um, protected forests once a year, at least. And what the, we got an interpretation of what the the teacher was telling the children who were going through and seeing the way the forest was protected and seeing people with jobs as guides, taking people into the forest to have a look. Um, You know, there was a whole lot of ranger employment and other employment behind that, uh, looking after the natural values and then promoting the tourist industry and these big hubs nearby the forest, but not actually encroaching on that. And the children were being told that if they tried hard enough and were good enough, and became well enough qualified, they would be fortunate and be able to work in the forests on this big program that was going to benefit the country and the world. That's the attitude that we need all, all around the world. And uh, Costa Rica's really led out on that and, and continue to do so.
1: Are there any other examples, like I've heard this massive tree planting projects, but are they in tandem with this philosophy of protecting?
4: So tree planting schemes can be very dubious. What we need to look for is, is is forest restoration, which actually often the forest will do for itself. Occasionally, it needs a bit of help. So replanting degraded areas with a combination of cropping and tree cropping, and having trees for shelter belts and so on, so that they're actually improving the environment for nature and for humans and making it into a place that can feed people and that uh, stores a lot of carbon so you do see that sort of thing happening and being advocated and that's part of this conversation about nature-based solutions to climate change Mm -hmm. um, being able to keep some areas natural revert some areas to what they were naturally and in other places do a combination of what you need to do to produce food and provide um, a nice space for humans um, at the same time as growing a greater diversity and bringing trees back into the equation.
1: What's happening in Glasgow with the biomass working group? Are they influencing winds or how is that going?
4: Oh, it's a long hard fight and things are done in small increments at, at a cop. Uh, our problem is that many of the most influential developed countries and developed country blocks like Europe are benefiting from burning biomass because they look like they're doing something good. So they look so burning forests um, helps them make their carbon accounts look good europe got very rattled in um, reviewing their renewable energy directive and have had to begin to constrain some of the criteria around burning forest biomass but they haven't taken it off the books yet mm. um the same thing's happening in the uk they're really strongly pushing not just burning uh forest for energy but then taking the emissions and, and trying to pump them underground somewhere in um, bioenergy with carbon capture and storage and the Pumping underground somewhere is even more dubious um, in terms of whether it would ever work, because it doesn't at the moment in any sort of scale anywhere. Um, They're trying to push that. So we've we've been doing the work, but we haven't got into a decision point in the negotiation yet. We're pressing towards that, and we're beginning to get um, the likelihood of reviewing some of those, um, those policy settings, but it won't happen at this COP. It's a a work of of some several years and uh, we're we're further ahead than we were, but we're not near a resolution yet, Um, partly because we need to deal with fossil fuels as well, um, but mainly because it's a good place for cheating and The countries like cheating, so they all look good, even if the atmosphere doesn't know the difference.
1: Yeah. Oh, well, thank you very much, Peg. Um, I I think from the the street, you know, from all the Extinction Rebellion people and the children, I don't think people are putting up with this lack of honesty, the cheating, you know, even government. People are so distrustful of governments, a lot of people being interviewed in the street saying that sort of thing. So... You know, listeners, we have, just have to be very brave with this. Peg's an absolute warrior in this field and has been doing it for so many years, but we have to stand firm behind this effort because it will it will evolve into something. It might not be this COP. But I, I notice a lot of people are just saying, oh, this COP is, you know, media are just saying, this. oh, this COP is a great failure, a great disappointment, and then they more or less throw their hands up in the air and walk away. But I think we have to hang in there, don't we?
4: well we can't walk away we're talking about the the future of of our life as humans on the planet anyway hmm. and a lot of other life on the planet when it comes down to it you know every citizen has a role to play and we're finding more and more people are coming to our cause definitely and and really beginning to beginning to shake things up in numbers and, and saying they're not going to go away and you know thank goodness for the young people actually pointing out all the blah 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 because it is mm. Mm. and it's always been this complicated smoke screen to try and fool citizens and what we actually need is some genuine commitment and some moving forward now some places really want to do that the pacific island states for example they mm. desperately want to do this and look at how australia's treating them and Mm. treating those aspirations absolutely outrageous and that's our country doing that on our our behalf so we have to stand up Mm. um and you know it's not an easy thing to do personally and it's very emotionally difficult as well but i just feel worse if i didn't and i think that's where people get to in the end you've got to do a bit of something whatever you can do
1: yeah okay well thank you very much peg i've been talking to peg but in tasmania
5: This is 3CR Monday Breakfast. Good morning, I'm Evan Wallace. It is 7.24am. That was Vivian Langford from the Climate Action Show, which you can catch on 3CR at 5pm. She was speaking with Peg Putt, who's a former leader of the Tasmanian Greens and now the coordinator of the UN Forest, Climate and Biomass Working Group of the Environmental Paper Network. It's Monday, which means we're at the start of another week. In the studio is Caitlin. Hello, Caitlin.
3: Hi, Evan. Good morning.
5: How was your weekend, Caitlin?
3: It was really lovely. It was so sunny. It was great. How was
5: yours? It was also very sunny, perhaps a little bit too much of it. I did an epic bike ride going from Swan Hill to Achuka on day one, and then day two from Achuka down to Bendigo, so I, about 280 kilometres of cycling.
3: I am exhausted just hearing about it. That sounds <laughs> like way too much cycling.
5: It was beautiful, though, seeing the, the landscape change and uh, riding into all sorts of different communities along the way. Really, really lovely, especially at the start around the Mallee country as well. Mm. Incredible Australian bird life. And, yeah, it was, uh, it was a treat. Did it with my friend and really took the... Um, Yeah, really took the slow back roads, but a good, good treat. We've got a great show lined up for you all today with a number of different interviews, going from looking at the 20th anniversary of the iPod, uh, also to um, interviews where we're looking at um, uh, the... the She Club, and that's going to be quite fascinating.
3: Yeah, so the She Club, it has just opened on Smith Street, and I spoke to one of the founders on the weekend, and we're going to do a live interview with her a little bit later.
5: Mm-hmm. Fantastic. And then also, two catching Richard Keane from Living Positive Victoria. And then towards the end of today's show, so after 8 p.m., speaking to now from Herak Collective. So a loaded show. This is 3CR. Monday breakfast.
0: Celebrate a family-friendly New Year's Eve in Yarra. Join us at Edinburgh Gardens North Fitzroy and Barclay Gardens in Richmond for kids' games, sports competitions, lighting installations, relaxed live music and an outdoor cinema. This free, family-friendly event kicks off at both parks at 12 midday. Bring a picnic and ring in the new year with family and friends. Check out the full program at yarracity.vic.gov.au. And remember, City of Yarra Park streets and public spaces are alcohol-free on New Year's Eve. The City of Yarra is a 3CR supporter.
5: This is 3CR Monday Breakfast. It's been a eventful week, as always, over the last number of years with COVID very much dominating our news and day-to-day headlines, but uh, also, too, some significant developments over the globe. So right now, it's time for our news headlines. So over the weekend, the Victorian government declared that it won't be pursuing a Omicron Zero strategy with the aim of very much keeping state borders open to the rest of Australia being announced by the Victorian government. comes after in New South Wales, the Omicron variant grew to 15. In Europe, it's rapidly spreading. In the UK, I think it was about 160, um, with reports of further growth in other countries in the EU. Caitlin, how are we feeling around the new variant?
3: That's a really good question, Evan. Um, I am always trying to sort of maintain my anxiety levels um, and I think I'm just sort of waiting to see whether or not it's something to really worry about. But um, at the moment, I think the main concern is just the um, the way that there are sort of certain kind of certain sort of political decisions being made on the basis of, you know, a, a variant that hasn't been confirmed as sort of anything like it's been, you know, it's of concern, but it hasn't been determined that, you know, it's a you know, particularly more dangerous than other other variants. And there's sort of, you know, those border closures and that sort of thing that have been made to particular nations, are, That that's what's really concerning me at the moment. So yeah, I'll just sort of wait and see, I think.
5: Yeah, I think that's really sensible and hoping that responses are very much driven by science. There's still so much mm. that's unknown and agree with you wholeheartedly around those border closures which are targeting some of the most disadvantaged countries in the world when we know that the virus is freely circulating internationally. It's nonsensical, but just seems to be so driven by populism more than anything else.
3: Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, it's really motivated by... Um... I think, fear rather than science. And that's a real concern, I think, for me.
5: Without any doubt. Um, Moving from COVID to thinking about um, countries in the world which have had challenging years for um, all sorts of different reasons. And one of those... Um, countries which has experienced a, a really arduous 2021 is Myanmar. So the BBC reporting that seven people over the weekend were injured as a military truck drove into a group of protesters rallying against that military junta, which has been in place since February. It's estimated that over 1,200 people have been killed at protests and thousands upon thousands of individuals imprisoned. Over that period of time, it's a very sad, very, very challenging situation in Myanmar. And you look to a country where people are living under such oppression and you wonder what sort of response can be formulated internationally to support people who are protesting against such a, a horrible reality. Your thoughts, Caitlin?
3: Well, yeah, I totally agree, Evan. I think that there's a lot that needs to be um, a lot needs to be done. I think from where we are, though, it's important. I think to sort of see what we can do to support communities on the ground, and to be, um, I guess, giving a platform and hopefully talking more about it on 3CR in the coming months.
5: Yeah, without any doubt. And then from a very, very, very challenging situation to one where we can tap into some hope, and that is hope when you do see some great policy reforms putting in place in a country that isn't always so known for its uh, progressive uh, outlook when it comes to the environment or when it potentially comes to some forms of social policy. But in Germany, it appears that a new coalition is going to be sworn in on Wednesday. That coalition's to be led by the Social Democratic Party, but it'll also include the Greens, who are largely similarly aligned to the Greens in Australia. If we're trying to understand what the Greens are like within in Germany. And then also the Freie Demokratische Partei, the FDP. Um, and they've agreed to a range of significant new policy commitments. But given you know, the follow-on from um, this year's Glasgow Climate Conference and debate in Australia just over the weekend around what our 2020 renewable energy target might look like, um, there's been really phenomenal commitments with a decision that uh, this new coalition government would phase out coal for that to occur by 2030 as opposed to 2038, uh, that also by 2030 80% of the country's electricity will be powered by renewables, that's pretty huge and then also at the same time the that coalition wants about 15 million electric cars on the road seems like a another world compared to where the debate is in Australia right now.
3: Oh, absolutely. It's um it's so hopeful and it's just exactly what we need to be doing here and yeah, it just only makes our uh my or only makes my feelings about our climate policy even more sort of frustrated and I don't know full of despair, but I think that, you know, it's really important to look to places like Germany who are doing All of those things that are just going to massively make a a difference to the way that our climate looks in, you know, 10, 15, 20 years.
5: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And also for a country that mm, so much of its economy is also tied to the auto industry, it's quite a significant shift considering... The leverage that um, those huge um, companies have largely come into mind, Mercedes-Benz, but also Volkswagen as well too, uh, when it comes to their influence that they can put on mm-hmm. government and then also their critical role across German cities, I think it's, it's amazing to have a government that's prepared to... Um, resist that level of pressure, and then also say, "Hey, we know what um, hey a better climate could look like, and we know what sort of decisions and policies um, mm-hmm. is needed to yeah, I suppose minimize the damage that that's that's, uh, that's already been locked in, so good on the German government for pushing along along those um, yeah along those lines, and then finally, over the weekend, um, the u n has appealed for increased support for the 3.5 million people displaced by conflict inside of Afghanistan, including 700,000 this year. It's, it's huge, 700,000. It's 700, a staggering 000. number of it, people. It really is. Um, and then, I suppose more heartbreaking too, it's estimated that 55% of the population are facing extreme levels of hunger with nearly 9 million at risk of famine we haven't heard a lot about afghanistan and mainstream press over the the last month um but it's a it's a shocking shocking situation that's there um many ways in which listeners can support um the situation in afghanistan there are aid agencies who are doing their absolute best to get support into people since the taliban takeover and um, you just hope that there's a level of support that's still able to enter them to the country.
3: Absolutely. And I think we can put some links in our show notes as well and share them on um, social media if people wanna um, if people can donate and can share support, that would be fantastic.
5: Absolutely. This is 3CR Monday breakfast. That was the news headlines for December, Monday the sixth. We're now going to hear an interview with Richard Keane, who is the CEO of Living Positive Victoria. He's going to be talking about World AIDS Day and recent challenges and successes of people living with AIDS. It's also really going to zone into ways that governments, communities, and individuals can support uh, this, uh, yeah, this overall um, overall dynamic. So. And This is uh, an interview from your favourite and friendly Monday um, uh, presenter, Jacob, and it is 7.36.
6: World AIDS Day was on the 1st of December, and this is a day to raise awareness of issues surrounding HIV and AIDS. The UN estimates that approximately 37.7 million people are living with HIV across the world, And in Australia, we're quite lucky to have medications to treat HIV. However, there's still a fair amount of challenges faced by people who contract the disease. So joining us now is Richard Keane, who is the CEO of Living Positive Victoria. Richard, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you, Jacob. I appreciate the opportunity to join you.
6: Not a problem. It's a pleasure to host you. So tell us a bit about Living Victoria, sorry, Living Positive uh, Victoria and the work that you folks do.
2: Yeah, so Living Positive Victoria was founded in 1988 and it's an organisation that's run by and for people living with HIV. Um, I myself am a person who lives with HIV. I was diagnosed when I was 19 years old back in 1989, so a year after the organisation was formed. Um, and as you could imagine, I've seen um, a lot of that 40-year history, I guess, but Living Positive Victoria has a range of programs to support people living with HIV across their kind of lifetime journey of living with HIV. Um, we have a program called Peer Navigation, which is only about five years old, but we partner with our clinical partners uh, in the Alfred Northside Clinic, Paran Market Clinic, and Monash in out near Dandenong as well. And they usually refer recently diagnosed clients into our organisation to get some peer support. Or also we engage with people who might be having a few challenges and have fallen out of care. Over time, So really, I guess the role of a peer is that they have an acute understanding about the complexities and some of the challenges of living with HIV and really do add um, a a real benefit for people connecting uh, so they don't feel so isolated and so they understand that this is a condition that can be lived with and you can live well and um, achieve your life's full potential.
6: Yeah, wow, it sounds like such a, a long... Uh, lasting and, and really special organization, and I think the work you guys do is so important. As I am sure you can attest, it's it's probably quite an isolating experience being living with HIV or AIDS. And yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. And as you know, it was World AIDS Day on Wednesday, so I am sure you would have a lot to say um, about this. So, what's the significance of this day to you, and and why do we keep why should we keep having this conversation around AIDS?
2: Oh, look, I I think that that's a really important question and it's kind of split into two parts. I guess as we kind of approach that 40-year mark, I can't help but reflect on the 8,000 Australians that were lost to AIDS, um, particularly in those early years. Um, I came out at a time and was diagnosed at a time before there were any effective treatments. And when I was diagnosed at 19, I was told that I maybe had five years. And that I should kind of enjoy myself and um, take care of any unfinished business and other things. And when you're 19, um, that's a little bit confronting. I was in my first year of uni, so I dropped out of uni. And um, so HIV in some ways put some barriers in in those early years for me and what I thought I could achieve um, across my life. So um, I acknowledge all of those we've lost. And when you compare that, you know, we're talking about COVID now and we're talking about the lives lost in COVID and um, it's nowhere near the 8,000 people that we lost to this pandemic. And um, that's been a challenging aspect of it, particularly for some older community members of ours who went through those early years and then facing another pandemic um, over recent years has been really challenging psychologically for people. And um, Living Positive Victoria has been right at the forefront of maintaining connection to those people to ensure that um, we support them in getting through the challenges uh, of COVID over the second pandemic.
6: Mm, Wow, yeah.
2: And I I guess in a modern context, um, as well as reflecting on all that loss and the grief and how challenging it was, it's a completely different uh, situation now here in 2021 in a a local Australian context than here in Victoria. We have about 8,000 people living with HIV here in Victoria. And we've seen significant decreases in recent years with biomedical advances um, like pre-exposure prophylaxis or PEP uh, as well known across our community, which means that um, people who are HIV negative take a pill a day um, to prevent them from uh, contracting HIV. But what is more important for me and um, really quite life-changing for people living with HIV, um, in 2017, the former our health minister, um, came out on World AIDS Day in 2017 and acknowledged the science and the data and the evidence around undetectable viral load. Now, I've had an undetectable viral load because of the treatments that I take for about 10 years. But that means if I maintain an undetectable viral load, I can't transmit HIV onto other people. And it's become a key aspect of us working with people who've had a recent diagnosis and um, getting them to begin their treatment as soon as possible because not only are you looking after yourself and your own health but you're potentially looking after the health of others. And something that I thought would never happen in my lifetime is that people living with HIV can now have the healthy sexual and reproductive lives that every other Australian experiences and it's life-changing and Mm life-affirming
6: couldn't agree more with that. And I think it's it's so important uh, to promote the the U equals U. And I've, I've noticed that there's a lot more work happening in, in that space. So it's it's really happy. Well, I'm really happy uh, to see that. And so yeah. you mentioned yeah. um, the, the development of, of PrEP and PEP. What have been some of the successes, I guess, for people living with, with AIDS in recent years? They're,
2: they're the huge big successes. Um, and I guess The other thing to remember is that um, out of those 8,000 Victorians, about 4,200 of those are now over 50 years of age. And that's the other aspect of HIV that we never thought we'd be dealing with, is people ageing with HIV. And with more than half of our population over 50 and the great successes we've seen with the, the drop in the numbers of new diagnoses over the years, that cohort is only going to continue to grow. So at Living Positive Victoria, we've had a very strong focus. On um, developing supports for those people who are aging with HIV, who may have some other chronic manageable conditions that they live with as well. And how do you work through that? How do you age well living with HIV? And um, for your listeners, um, Our website is livingpositivevictoria.org.au and I encourage them to jump on and have a look around. And we've just added um, a new section of our website called Well Beyond 50, which focuses on a whole range of areas around ageing well with HIV. And they include things like other conditions that you might be having to contend with and how they impact how to stay community connected and also to information about you know end of life stuff, and sometimes it's really challenging talking about this, but all those things like wills, um medical and legal power of attorney, um a whole range of other things that most people who are ageing um kind of need to start to consider, and there's a whole lot of information on our website to support people.
6: Wow, yeah, I, I never would have considered uh, what big of an impact uh, ageing would have on people already living with HIV. And you mentioned before about the the pandemic having an impact um, in that, you know, we've already lived through one pandemic, essentially, and now there's a second one. I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit more on how COVID-19 has affected uh, the, the people living with AIDS and, and that community.
2: Yeah, in some really um, challenging ways, and not dissimilar to how it would affect general community members, but part of, I guess, living well with HIV, there's a very connected and supportive community in, in in a peer community that's developed around HIV. And a lot of people's wellbeing and kind of resilience in dealing with HIV is to be able to come together with other people with lived experience who kind of understand um, your journey a little bit. Um, and don't get me wrong, everybody's story is completely unique and valid. But when you get around a group of other positive people and you're having a bit of a chat, all of a sudden parts of their storyline, you'll find something that you can relate to or that resonates with you or has been an experience that you've had and all of a sudden those conversations start developing ways of dealing with challenges. Like, a lot of the challenges that people still face today are the same really human questions that I asked myself all those years ago. Like, oh, my God, you know, what does this mean for me? Have I let myself down? Has my behaviour meant that maybe I deserve this or... Who's going to love me now? You know, who am I ever going to be able to have a relationship with? So those questions are still the same human questions that people ask themselves with a diagnosis today. And so um, in some ways there have been a lot of successes, but stigma is still quite pervasive, disease stigma. And I think that that's something that's been reinforced by COVID as well. Um, That fear of uh, infection, that fear of disease, particularly... During the first lockdown, I had an older gentleman ring me on the phone, and he was very low and feeling very blue, and he said, You know, I'm sitting here, and I'm thinking, you know, we lost 8,000 people. They didn't close down everything for us. They didn't get behind us. They didn't spend billions of dollars and get every scientist to kind of try and find a cure for us. Why was that? And I kind of took a deep breath and I thought, no, actually, I've got to flip this on its head. And I just reminded that individual of what we've been able to achieve under really challenging circumstances. um, It's hard to convey to your listeners the homophobia and the hatred and fear and the loathing that was around in those early years and really quite harshly directed towards gay men in particular who were predominantly and disproportionately affected during that time. And I think that despite all the successes and changes, HIV stigma is still a really big challenge. And I think the other thing is, for far too long it's been left to HIV positive people to try and address that stigma. But I think in the broader community, if it's not your lived experience, you kind of put up a bit of a blank wall when you've got a positive person talking about how challenging stigma is and other things like that. And I think we need our political leaders We need our allies in the community to talk about stigma and to talk about the importance of removing that because it really does... I think that's why people still ask those questions when they get a diagnosis because that Mm. stigma is still quite pervasive.
6: Yeah, stigma is um, definitely a massive challenge for sure. And I I have, I have so much respect um, for older members of our community because I couldn't even imagine some of the barriers there that you would face not only as a gay man, but also as someone who's diagnosed with HIV. Mad respect there. And you talked a bit about your website before, but I'm, I've got a bit of a, um, a multifaceted question for you. No problem. how can governments communities and individuals support people living with aids
2: um that's a great question look in this country and you know we we have a whole range of challenges with our governments and our politicians and the decisions they make and whether we agree with them or not but we've been very very lucky in this country Er, very early on there was a decision to have a community-led response rather than a medical approach so that meant that community and people living with HIV have always been part of the response and um, at every level of the decision-making processes that affect our lives and that the response has been non-partisan and I think that's really at the heart of a lot of success that we've had over that 40 years and when we look ahead and we're looking to potentially eliminate HIV and end HIV by 2030, I don't think it's just that aspirational. I think it is achievable. I think there needs to probably be a little bit more funding rather than stretching it out. I think it's within reach and and it's really quite empowering to be able to say that. However, every person living with HIV today will still be living with HIV tomorrow until there's a cure. So organisations like Living Positive Victoria that support people across their entire lifetime with HIV will continue to remain um, really, really important. I think some of the things that government can do though, in the last 10 years, the communities that I engage with have diversified beyond belief. Now more than 50% of new diagnoses are people that are born overseas. And they might've come from a high prevalence region where there's lots of HIV, or they might've come from Southeast Asia where there's really poor and low testing rates. And they may have been living with HIV for quite some time before they're diagnosed when they arrive in Australia. So there's a whole range of complications that come in health-wise and also, too, about connecting to those communities and getting language in their language. Information, in-language information, is going to be absolutely crucial as we work, work forward. Um, we get some support with interpreters, uh, like at Melbourne Sexual Health, When the peer navs go in and they might have somebody who has quite poor English skills, they'll get an interpreter to come in. But we kind of look at equity as being central to our pathway forward at Living Positive Victoria. And we're working to try and get a little bit of additional funding. So not only can someone engage with a peer navigator, but hopefully they might be able to participate in some of our other programs that we run at Living Positive Victoria with the support of an interpreter. Um, but that is quite costly. But um, I guess if I'm looking forward and I'm saying what do we need to do, they're the key things that we need to do. The communities are different. Um, The recent data in September quarter of 2020, which is the latest data we had, showed a significant drop um, in new diagnoses, but that might have a lot to do with lockdowns and COVID as well. But we're also seeing the numbers of MSM fall away and new diagnoses. And we're seeing actually heterosexual men and women now making up 40% of new diagnoses of HIV. So that's also a significant shift.
6: Mm, It's um, so many moving parts here. And I I couldn't agree more on your points about equity and accessibility. I think, if anything, the pandemic has illustrated the importance um, of having information available in such a diverse amount of languages.
2: And it's reinforced And, you know, um, what we've seen, in, and I guess the difference between the two is one felt like it was in slow motion because you got your HIV diagnosis and then you waited to get sick. And there were a number of conditions and it was so different in every person and so individual. Some people got a whole range of conditions. Other people did okay, Um, But it was like a slow march towards being very, very sick, whereas this has been on hyperdrive. Do you know what I mean? So there's a little mm. bit different thing, but the one thing that echoes the same is that real clear message that if we leave anyone behind, we're all vulnerable. And I think that's the key message of any pandemic, and they affect people at the margin. Any type of pandemic, any type of disease will always affect those people at the margin.
6: Hmm. Absolutely. Well, Richard, that's all I um, have for you today. But do you want to tell us where we can follow Living Positive Victoria on the social medias?
2: Absolutely. We have our fantastic Facebook page um, and we share a lot of content across there, really interesting information about upcoming events and a whole range of other things. And again, our website at livingpositivevictoria.org.au. There's a lot of information there and um, I welcome anyone to reach out and engage with us.
6: Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on today. Really appreciate your insights. Thank you so much.
3: Thanks so much to Jacob for that interview with Richard Keane, CEO of Living Positive Victoria. This morning, we are joined by Ridhima Sachdeva, who runs Hemera Labs, which is part of the She Club, a collective of migrant women-owned businesses that have just opened in Collingwood. The She Club is focused on creating a space for migrant women to run their own businesses while also sharing support. Ridema joins us today following the launch of the She Club on Saturday the 4th of December to tell us about why this space is important and what the collective's plans are. Ridema, welcome to 3CR. Hi,
7: thank you so much. It's so nice it's so to talk to, to you.
3: Um, could you just start off by telling us about the process of starting the collective so what was the um the impetus, what was the drive to get this place off the ground?
7: Right. So uh me and my two partners, which is Brenda and Kareem, we met at a co retail and we used to do pop ups there. We would have like Mother's Day pop ups or Christmas pop ups and we had micro businesses. And uh that's where we met and we shared the same zeal and we were you know, we were having the same struggles as women in business. And that's when we kind of um, thought that let's just create a community of women like us, migrant women who are in business, who are sharing the same kind of struggles and who have the same agendas and the goal. They want to grow. All of us were just creative beings and, uh, and you know, we, we just wanted to um, excel in our businesses and create a similar platform. That's when this idea of creating the She Club was born, that, you know, we wanted to excel in our businesses, but at the same time create a similar platform for women who were facing similar problems. They are creative, but they did not get a platform to show their artwork or show, uh, you know, whatever that they are into. Mm. So that is what kind of created the Sheet Club. We were total strangers when we met, I'm talking about, a year back. And then we started this journey of um, uh, looking out how to lease places. We had absolutely no idea whatsoever of uh, how to lease places, how to open a retail shop and everything. And I mean, from total strangers, we were here, good friends, and now we are like a family at the She Club.
3: That's fantastic. That's such a great story. Um, yeah. So could you just, I guess, talk a little bit about what some of those barriers were that you were trying to sort of address with the She Club? You sort of talked about like the the difficulties that some of the women that you've worked with were facing. Um but I wondered if you could elaborate elaborate a little bit more about some of those.
7: so I mean as migrant women uh we are we are we are creative, we come from different backgrounds. Language is one of the very language and communication mm-hmm. I'd say is one of the main reasons where a lot of migrant women they kind of um uh, are held back actually mm-hmm. that you know they are not able to showcase their work, they're not able to showcase how creative they are, especially when they move from different countries. Mm -hmm. And uh, that is one major barrier. Apart from that, as creative as, uh, you know, because of language, because of not having an experience in Australia, a work experience, we not really get the the kind of jobs that would really suit our caliber. Mm. And uh, that's when you kind of think that, you know, I want to to get into my own business and show my creativity. Mm -hmm. And uh, those were the struggles that as migrant women, creative people we faced uh, and a lot of my peers have also faced. And um, and that's when we got into business. And after we got into our business, then the, the struggles were the small business struggles that we faced. Mm. And, uh, yeah, that, that was the journey that we had initially. And slowly, like, how to run a small business, a completely new place. If you're in your own, if in the countries that we come from, they have a different uh, outlook and business ethics altogether. Mm-hmm. And we had to learn everything from scratch here. So, so yeah, those were the initial stru- uh, struggles that myself and all of my friends and uh, peers have faced that um, what is the accounting system like? Where do I sell my product? Who will like my product? Mm. Does my aesthetic, would, you know, is it something that um, the customer would like? Like, is it too, is it too inspired from my culture? Mm. So, yeah.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. And I loved what you said just before about the... The way that having the collective kind of levels the playing field for you and the other women, that it uh, it sets you up on a really good foundation to do the thing that you love, which is be creative and um, run your own business. And I actually wondered as well if you could tell us a little bit about Hamera uh, Labs and what is it that you that you create, what is, and what are some of the other businesses that are currently being run at the She Club. Right. So
7: the She Club has. Um, Four businesses in it. So, right now, I, myself, I am a digital illustrator and embroidery artist. And mm-hmm. my brand is called the Hemera Labs. And I create um, illustrated scarves and embroidered headbands. And voilas, there are a couple of, so a lot of luxury accessories is what we do under Hemera Labs. Mm-hmm. Then I have my friend, She her brand is called L- Latina Styles. She does Latin American activewear, and um, they're all a lot. A lot of the products are made from recycled plastics and they're ethically sourced. Mm-hmm. And uh, then is El Bosque Botanico, which means the forest and an enchanted garden that's run by Branda Gill. She, uh, she is actually a green designer and she runs a plant nursery and uh, terracotta, all from Colombia. And then the fourth one is the Chai Cafe, which is um, uh, it's called the Chai Chai Cafe. It's run by myself and my partner, and uh it's just um it's just like one place after you kind of walk through the sheet club sh- have your shopping just something to relax and have like a soul warming cup of chai
3: yeah it's fantastic yeah. it is really good chai i just want to do a big shout out to the chai <laughs> chai cafe it is very good chai um i got to sample it on the weekend um uh, Ritima, what are your plans for the collective so you've talked a little bit about what some of the goals are, and I wondered if you could tell us a bit about what it, what you wanted to achieve um, and that space that you have upstairs, though, what are your plans for the, the that workshop space?
7: Right, so with what we have right now is, um, you know, right, like I said, we have four businesses, but apart from those four businesses that we have right now, we've already connected with at least 15 migrant businesses right now. Mm. They come from all different uh, walks of life, like some, somebody is a marketing professional, someone is a uh, maker, a creator. So with this collective, I think we, we wish to build a community that understands each other and uplifts each other. And uh, we're looking to hold workshops for other business owners and uh, like marketing workshops or even fun workshops, like a sangria-making workshop, mm-hmm. or maybe also like how to deal with the small business struggles. The, the collective actually, uh, you know, it got it a sense of com- community with us, which we feel, I mean, it was just um, something that we met on that level. And, and that's the sense of community we want to create for other migrant women as well.
3: Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. Yeah. So it's about creating a community and creating the same and sharing the opportunities and sharing knowledge is what you're saying. Uh-
7: Absolutely. And all of us like, you know, um I have been in business, I have run Himera Labs for about three years and I have had my different set of struggles, uh, you know, mm. and and same goes for my other partners and and that's what we want to share through this platform then and a lot of people are entering business now or they've entered recently, they are facing those similar struggles. So we want to let out our knowledge and, and in fact and even learn from other other people who have who have set up other struggles to tell us, how do we
3: succeed? Mm, that's fantastic. And finally, can you tell us how people can support the collective? And uh, if there are any other migrant women's businesses that you want to give a shout out to?
7: Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, first of all, I'd really like to thank the listeners and our supporters who've uh, who really, really supported us uh, through this journey? Our uh, grand opening event was a big success. We had a lot of people drop in. Our neighbors, the uh, the community is absolutely amazing. Mm. So um, uh, it's a big, big thank you to them. And you could continue to support us by uh, by referring any migrant business owner to to us. And and you know, just we want to uh expand our community that's that's one big thing that we want to do we are new we need a lot of support we're new to the neighborhood and we need a lot of support so just drop in i mean um come into our come into the chic club have a cup of chai with us uh if you know and um if you want a beautiful accessory you can shop at Himera labs you could if you want a uh, active wear you could shop at latina styles you can have a cup of chai, and you can buy some plants for a nursery. And there are, apart from us, there's a lot of other brands that we are we have at um, at the She Club. We have a macrame artist, which is Anna Cooper. We have um, a brand which makes swimwear and beachwear out of recycled mm-hmm. plastic bottles, which is Arma Universal. Mm-hmm. So we have we have a lot of different migrant women who have showcased their brands with us. So uh, we would definitely want all our neighbors and everybody to drop in and, uh, you know, buy their Christmas gifts with us and just uh, give us that boost that we as creative beings are doing our best.
3: Fantastic. Thank you so much, Rudima. That's all we have time for. Uh, but thank you for joining us on 3CR Breakfast.
7: Thanks so much. Thanks a lot. Good one.
3: That was uh, Sash Sajdiva from the She Club in Collingwood. I believe their address is number 69 Smith Street if you wanted to check them out.
5: Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. They're 100% recycled cards, Plastic-free stationery and Earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. This is 3CR Monday Breakfast. Now, we all have an encyclopedia of music in our pockets. Well, essentially all of us. 90% of Australia's population with smartphones. The way we listen to music has been revolutionized in so many different ways over the last 20 years, with streaming being a massive development and technology is all underpinning that. But there are some really core issues and core trends that I think are worthwhile exploring. And one person who's going to do that with us today is Dr. Stuart James, who's a lecturer in the composition, um, in, lecture in composition, I should say, and music technology at the Western Australian Academy of Performing Arts. He's passionate about how we interact with music and how this continues to evolve and change. Stuart. On Monday Breakfast on 3CR is going to be talking to us about the 20th anniversary of the iPod. He's going to be chatting with us about its connection with music streaming and what lies ahead for the way we listen to our favourite tunes, including how underneath all of this um, music is becoming potentially more democratised if you look at it from one way or controlled if you're looking at it from another. This is 3CR Monday Breakfast. Stuart, this October marked 20 years since the iPod was released. Let's go back all those years. How was it received when it was initially put out
8: into the wider community and on market? Yeah, it was received very, very well. Um, It was released in uh, 2001. Um, And in fact, within that quarter, um, they had sold 125,000 units um, it, it was originally 399 US dollars to to buy. It was a, a slimline design, um, and with five gigabytes of storage available on board, um, it was um, um, able to store a lot of music. That's a great piece of
5: background there, and just while we're looking at the past as well too, this might be a little bit hard for some listeners to recall, but can you talk us through the main ways that people really listened to music just prior to the release of the iPod? So
8: how were people engaging and connecting with music 20 years ago? Prior to the iPod, I mean, we might be inclined to make mixtapes on cassette, which was one way to to personalise our listening experience. that That's sort of one or it's few and far between perhaps um, by comparison to these days.
5: So was it the most revolutionary part of the release of the iPod being the increased personalisation of our music
8: listening experience? Definitely that that was a major component. This, this added convenience um, and freedom around uh, listening practices and the ability to, to be able to store one's entire music collection on just this, you know, slimline device that can fit in your pocket. One could, yeah, enjoy the listening across the day and it didn't matter whether it was from home or from work, uh, they, they could create a, a playlist that would seamlessly integrate through their through their day. You talked about mp3 players being fairly
5: bulky prior to the release of the ipod just how popular
8: were mp3 players
5: when the ipod was
8: released well it's 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 quite complex really because around the same time as mp3 emerged as a file format the internet was was also reaching i guess a, a peak of sorts in terms of its democratization so tools were emerging that allowed for the the free sharing of content uh, via peer-to-peer uh, file sharing services, and the internet speeds were were, were kind of commensurate with kind of um, you know requirements of the files that that people were sharing at the time. MP3, given it, you can virtually get similar to, or, or this is the way they um, they framed it, was was that you could get virtually CD quality audio um, with a file size that was about a tenth. Of the size of the the original lossless audio file, this presented a lot of advantages because, obviously, you know, with restrictions on download speed, you know, you could get more files onto onto your MP3 player, enjoy more extended uh, listening as a result of that. You've talked there about the role of file sharing programs and its
5: connection with the iPod. So, to put it a little bit cheekily, would you say that the rise of the iPod was also very much
8: tied to the rise of music piracy? Yeah, I, <laughs> I, it's a good question too. Uh, I, I do feel may, maybe these these things, were obviously they were happening in at the same time. There was a simultaneity going on and it, it's probably difficult to say that one didn't influence the other um, in that <laughs> respect. But um, I mean, they also happened quite independently of each other. But I, I do wonder whether perhaps Apple conceived of the iPod being aware of the the increased interest, I think, from consumers in that kind of freely shareable domain. Uh, I, I mean, those peer-to-peer file-sharing services, Napster, LimeWire, that they, they appeared around 1999, which was a couple of years before the iPod was was released. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if they were making some just some cultural observations and and saying, hey there there seems to be kind of a demand or an, or an, an interest in in listening uh listening to more music um over the internet and perhaps you know that that as as far as portable listening players are concerned like finding a, a kind of a competitive product that that would allow uh listeners to to expand on what was possible at that point in time i I'd, yeah I'd, i'm not sure if it necessarily encouraged piracy directly i mean perhaps indirectly I mean, certainly that the popularity of Napster can't be denied. I mean, 80 million users um, within the, the first three years is a significant number. And yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I remember back, back back at those days, I mean, I, I <laughs> also used some of those services um, at that time. And I do recollect being aware of this, this interest in being able to just, you know, listen, listen to music that one had never heard of before, you know, some other part of the world and you know that you know we didn't have necessary physical access to in our local record record shops either on you know CD vinyl whatever the medium might be so that the, the globalization of that and and just the the inherent global nature of the internet allowed allowed for this wide expansion of the listening habits at that point you've talked about how listening habits changed and also that sense of
5: freedom that went into how listeners chose the orders of their songs and being able to mix and match and really level up on the mix tape and that they might have made for their friends or just for themselves as well but looking at the wider music industry what sort of implications did the release of the iPod have for the music industry at large
8: yeah so when when the iTunes music store was released so that there was a sort of a changing digital landscape really happening um, i'm talking probably particularly from the consumer perspective here where the consumer could f- for the first time choose to purchase a single track off an album not just that they can choose any track as opposed to just the single that, that the artist uh, chooses to release and so suddenly the whole meaning of the album perhaps in one respect i mean when we consider concept albums and that uh, as as one example, perhaps the meaning of an album might be seen as eroding, but at the same time, I, I think perhaps evolving is is a um, perhaps a more positive way of looking at it. The other aspect is is this idea of being able to download the file um, as as a means of owning that, and I think with response to piracy, it, it was important to find a um, sort of way of re-evaluating the the value associated value of music yeah i, I mean the changes also impact the artist too um i mean the artist wasn't bound so in that respect you know artists could then rethink about what what an album or a series of tracks actually means it gives gives them some added freedom around the, the length or the, the the way in which that is is packaged for the consumer love the way that you put that. And. Also curious to
5: hear your thoughts on the overall legacy of the iPod. And we know that the iPod very much lives on these days in the iPhone. Thinking about how the iPod has had the impact that it's had on music and then also on the community and um,
8: on individuals' lives as well too. How would you assess its legacy 20 years on? I guess the design of the iPhone or smartphones Generally, have had um, a large on on the way the the iPod has, has been repackaged, and in many ways, the iPhone changed the cultural perception about what it was possible to do on a portable device. You know, it wasn't just an iPod; it was a phone, a web browser, a gaming machine, and because they they opened up their development tools to the industry, um, and this all this also facilitated a proliferation of apps as well. This has only just contributed to the ever expanding idea of what the phone actually is or smartphone is these days it's it's certainly not just a phone Mm -hmm. and uh, i mean perhaps one of the truly revolutionary steps um in in the design of um the iphone was was the tactile immediacy um, of those devices and i think the ipod was also sort of part of this lineage in a way this this breaking down of the barrier between the user and the device this ability to be able to touch the screen and effect or interact with the user interface, I think is a really important cultural step to this this kind of seamless integration and experience of both the user and the technology. And now there are these real steps to have that
5: integration taken to a whole nother level. You've recently written an article for the conversation and you've talked about different hardware that uh, adapts to physiology. Is that going to be the future of how we listen to music, where we have that increased integration between body
8: music preferences and, and listening? I, I think it's definitely one of the telltale signs, this continuation or, or expansion of the idea of personalized listening um, and and how technology will integrate in seamless ways. For For instance, bone conduction headphones and wearables like the Bose audio sunglasses. A large amount of emphasis placed on immersive technologies. Um, But but these these kinds of technologies are becoming um, more streamlined and accessible, um, even over headphones. Um, But some of the telltale signs for immersive technologies, like 360 degree cameras, video cameras, um, our kind of interest in virtual reality um, and surround sound. Um, Apple's endorsement of Dolby Atmos in the iTunes Store, uh, just in recent months, um, and also um, integrating that into Logic Pro music production software, not only provides the consumer with the content for for listening to surround sound over headphones or multiple loudspeakers, but provides the artist with the tools to create it. And it's this inclusivity, which is something I I think is commendable, but and and is in, in line with a lot of the, the steps they've um, they've taken in, in previous years, that you know they focus not not only on creating the means for uh, society to contribute to these products in their own way um, and to personalize them in their own way, but this this creates more more options for the consumer. Social distancing, the pandemic has placed other constraints, so live streaming is becoming more of a normalized. Uh, means for live performance, Ariana Grande and Jean-Michel Jarre uh, have also looked at possibilities for virtual environments for their performances. And I, I think just one of the, maybe one of the problem areas that that is emerging is is just the sheer quantity of music that's out there. So one example of that is is that Spotify is. It was reported earlier this year that 60,000 tracks are uploaded to Spotify daily. Um, so you can imagine, I mean, just how much, how much music is out there is far beyond the amount that the quantity of music anyone can listen to in their lifetime. So we need we need better tools to be able to to discover music, and we have to also be mindful that as the the systems and uh, are there to support the distribution of music are becoming more saturated, it's a more of an uphill battle for new artists or even established artists to be seen. So these discovery tools are really important. Interactive interfaces. That allow the consumer to find content. So some of the new tools like this, are Radio Garden, Mood Play, uh, the Eternal jukebox for Spotify, and Instradive. that uh, they all create a different slant and just how we how we might discover music. Um, I think it's really important for the consumer. Um, you know, surprise is important not to be closed in on one's you know own echo chamber of existing preferences listening preferences but to be challenged in the way we listen and uh, to discover new sounds i love the
5: way you put that Stuart. thank you so much for chatting with me on the wire
0: Calling all filmmakers, the 9th Annual Setting Sun Film Festival wants your film. Enter a short or a feature length film for the chance to see your work up on the gorgeous Sun Theatre screen in Yarraville. The Sun Theatre was voted one of the most beautiful theatres in the world, with up to $10,000 in prizes for winners. Entries close on the 31st of January 2022. Go to settingsun.com.au and enter your film now. The Setting Sun Film Festival is a 3CR supporter.
5: This is Monday 3CR Breakfast. Um, You just heard before an interview with Dr. Stuart James talking about the 20th anniversary of the iPhone. It is coming up to 8.20am as we reach the home stretch for the show with me, I'm Evan Wallace. Also on Monday breakfast today is Caitlin and Fung. Fung, good to hear you, um, that you're here. Hopefully there's... Um, oh, I just need to press one button and get you fired <laughs> up. That's always the joys of COVID broadcasting as we're separated from one end of the universe to another. Fung, how are you doing this morning?
9: I'm well, thank you. Can you hear me now? I can hear you crystal Yay. clear.
5: This is, this is very great. Um, Oh yeah. Oh, sorry. Just thank you.
9: Thank you for bringing us that interview on the iPod. There were some words that I haven't heard in a while, like Napster. Haven't (laughs) heard that term in such a long time. It really brought back some memories.
5: Yeah, it definitely ages you. That's for sure. Depending on where you sit on the age spectrum. Yeah. We're pretty lucky in this studio that we have Caitlin, who is a really, really passionate student and also reader and explainer about all things smartphones. And, ah. and so Caitlin, hearing that interview and thinking about the twentieth anniversary of the iPod, it, it's had a huge impact on how we interact with music.
3: Definitely, yeah. And I think at the very beginning of that interview you talked about um the fact that ninety percent, I think over ninety percent of Australians now own and use a smartphone. So, you know the The dynamic of how we listen to music, how we communicate, how we um, how we think about our devices has completely changed in the last 20 years. And like you said, you know, you really ages you thinking about Napster and LimeWire and all that stuff about like, you know, how many times you've got a virus on your computer trying to download (laughs) music (laughs) and all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, so the, the smartphone has completely revolutionized the way that we listen to music and the way that we inter- – and so did the iPod initially as well.
5: Yeah, broad, broader question. I'm, I'm curious to hear both of your thoughts on this one. Do we think that the iPod – and and, and, and when we think about the iPod, it goes hand in hand with music streaming. Has it opened up – more choice for listeners to be able to really shape their own listening experience and that is sort of the democratization of music mm. with um, that inability to be able to easily make your own playlist to move seamlessly between one album to another to mix and match sounds although there's been some changes recently with Spotify that, mm. uh, might, have, that might alter that a little bit or have we seen on the other hand, this real control that's been put in place by Apple and further concentration of yeah, who owns music and how music's managed and streaming mm. services, just uh, having that, I suppose, overall concentration of um, of music content. Where where do you two sit? I might throw to Fung first.
9: Mm. Yeah, I think it's a it's a really hard question and something that I'm grappling with as I use those streaming services even though I know that a lot of independent local artists don't, um, even though they get quote unquote exposure, they're not fairly, um, they're not paid (laughs) enough. Um, but then I think about the fact that you can reach an international audience, um, with your music, you know, quite easily, um, I don't know. I think you're right in one way where you have that independence. It does feel quite empowering to make your own mis- mixtape and, and really choose what you listen to. But then I think about, and maybe I'm biased because we're on radio right now, but <laughs> I do love the joys of listening to radio and have someone else recommend music or or explore something, that um, a particular type of music that they're passionate about. And you get to Um, you're like invited along in that journey um, and listen to things that you would never have chosen yourself Um, even with you know Spotify having different genres that you can click on and listen to I feel like if I if there's something that I like I'll just listen to the same things over and over unless it's radio where you know I'm listening to one of my favorite programs and and they recommend a song or they talk about something a a song that they interested in I will gladly listen along does that make sense so yeah I don't I don't know about you Caitlin but that's that's where I'm sitting at the moment with with you know iPods and streaming services and things like that how about you
3: oh absolutely I um saw a great thing on Twitter last week I think about the Spotify wrapped thing where it says that um Spotify have managed to do this sort of really careful balance between we're tracking you but it's fun (laughs) (laughs) um and I think that's like a in addition to what you mentioned about the fact that artists get paid like less than um like a fraction of a cent for each song that gets played or per play of a song um there's also this kind of there's there's also a sort of surveillance capitalism Mm. aspect to it as well where someone you know there's 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 a constant feeling of being Um, observed and having your uh, tastes amalgamated and um, yeah it feels like you do I I mean I definitely listen to the same thing over and over and over again um, depending on like what mood I'm in I suppose whereas radio really does give you an opportunity it's a really democratic Mm. medium you can really hear so many different ideas voices songs pieces of music that you never would have thought of uh, what about you, Evan? What are your What are your thoughts?
5: <laughs> I'm just thinking about the idea and the thought that it is much lovelier hearing music that isn't programmed by an algorithm. That's mm. uh, that's something that weighs fairly heavily. And, and when I'm thinking about the joy that comes from from radio, I think that going back to what you were saying before, Caitlin, and also Fung as well. The role of streaming and iPods has opened this world to huge international discovery of music in a way that perhaps wouldn't have been possible 20 years ago in the same way but you may have been able to, if you're really looking, find some um, find some links and read some articles and push yourself to tapping into world music or tapping into music that really wouldn't necessarily have that amplification in the first place, whereas I think that's what's quite exciting about music streaming and then thinking about where this conversation stems from, the iPod and that ability mm. to have thousands upon thousands of songs available to you, that's quite wonderful being able to really scrape into the darker corners uh, of, um, mm. uh, of of the channels. And I like that. I like that a lot. then you're particularly interested in, in smartphones. So thinking yeah. about the iPod itself as, as a device and, and where smartphones are now, what do you think of the change from essentially... Music that wasn't all that connected to at least the device wasn't connected to the internet, and now we have you know, every single person with the internet in their pocket. How do you think that's changed things around too?
3: Oh, I mean, my interest is in sort of smartphones as so my research looks at the way that uh, women feel about their smartphones tracking them wherever they go mm. and the kinds of different interactions that they have with their phone dependent on on particular situations and i think that it's i think this is something that we've really been talking about quite a lot is it's neither um these things are really contradictory sometimes you know sometimes they are they're so i think let's talk about Spot, spotify wrapped as an example um it's presented as this really fun silly playful kind of um Assessment of your own tastes and your own listening patterns, while at the same time it kind of is generating profit for corporations, and that for a lot of people have people have a really difficult time sitting with that um, and sort of feeling the kind of the fun of using their phone in that way, while also being like, oh, this is being like I'm not necessarily the what I'm getting some benefit from it. I'm getting this kind of thrill. From it, but at the same time, it's also, you know, it's a little bit, uh, there's some compromises that people have to make when they use those kinds of um, services as well,
5: right? Absolutely compromises all the way. How's the ickiness factor for you, Fung?
9: I think (laughs) when we're sitting down and having this discussion like this, I think it's easier to detach myself from my personal use of, of these sorts of data tracking services and say like, yes, I think it's incredibly icky (laughs) to put it in your words, Evan. Um, and especially with something like Spotify, while we're talking about Spotify a lot, but you know, it is that it's, it's free advertising for them, free marketing and, and really Mm. turning, um, the, Surveillance into something like you said, Caitlin, that's really fun and kind of silly, um, but then I think about the many apps that I have on my phone that are probably tracking
0: <laughs> my
9: data, and i don't mm-hmm. I don't think about it you know for a second until I think year like every year when Spotify rap comes out you know we have these these conversations tend to peak again Um, Mm -hmm. but then I imagine there are other apps that we don't even think about really that would do the same I mean we did there were some conversations about you know using QR codes um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and the police you know potentially being able to use that data um, through the service app and things like that so yeah I think it's it's definitely a big issue. I, it's, it's hard to... Yeah. It's a
5: hard one mm-hmm. and it's a topic that I'm looking forward to continuing. Also on mm-hmm. other shows, this is 3CR Monday Breakfast. It's been a pleasure. Caitlin, thanks so much.
3: Thank you, Evan. Thanks,
0: Fong. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Have a and good morning. We'll
5: catch you tomorrow at 7am.
0: Uh, 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent
3: radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement
0: of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.
3: You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.